Hi there, this is the podcast designed to lift you up and make you feel better about life in the world of primary care, with some free CPD thrown in too. We've got some primary care pearls of wisdom to share with you to make your life easier. This time, there's the pearl that made us think, the one that made us smile, the one we've been waiting for, and the one that made us uncertain. Coming up, we're talking about semaglutide, moral distress and injury, neuroendocrine cancers, and chronic cough. And there's a reminder that when you hear hooves clattering along, you automatically think it's horses, but every now and again, it's zebras. So keep listening for that. But I can't do all of this by myself. Who's going to keep me company? I'm Caroline Green. And I'm Nick Kendrew. We're both part of the Red Whale presenting team. Come with us to reignite your passion for primary care. Welcome to the Primary Care Pod from Red Whale. The Primary Care Pod from Red Whale. Well, that's very exciting. Um, So this is the first podcast from Red Whale. Caroline, tell me why we're doing a podcast. Well, basically because our brilliant delegates asked for one. We know people love our pearls. They find them really useful and interesting. But let's face it, it's pretty busy at the moment. And lots of people said, please, can we have the pearls in an audio format so I can listen to them when I walk the dog or go for a run? And we thought, sure, why not? Well, that's what I like. It's nice to, to respond <laughs> to people in that way. Um, and I, I love a good podcast. So, yeah. so it's lovely to be here. So um, so this is very exciting. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking back over the polls that we've released in the last month. We're teasing out what we've learned. And so if you've read the polls already, brilliant. But if you haven't, then this is maybe a springboard to, to make you want to go and read them as well. So then, Caroline, let's start with the first one. What are we going to talk about first? We're going to talk about the pearl that made me think this month, and this was about semaglutide. So massive story in the news. Probably nobody escaped this story. And NICE approved semaglutide for the management of obesity in March 2023. So just last month. Now we have to remember it's already being used for glycemic control in diabetes in primary care. And some of us as primary care clinicians may be experienced prescribing it for that indication. But this is the first time it's been licensed and allowed to be used purely for the management of obesity in the UK. So there was loads in the press about this. And what made me think was, you know, there was a sense of unease for me with this, um, that as a society, we are accepting that we may need to medicate or consider bariatric surgery for a large and growing proportion of our population who are living with complex obesity. And yet what we're not seeing at the same time is sort of government and public health action to tackle this obesogenic environment we're living in. And that's why this pearl made me think there's a real moral dilemma here, because of course, obesity is a really complicated area. It's hugely important. And we have a whole section in our online handbook about it, which I write as it happens. And it's really challenged lots of preconceptions I had. But the reason why semaglutide has been licensed is because health behaviour change for many people, at best, will achieve a 3 to 5% weight loss. And that can be difficult to sustain in the long term. Losing the weight actually often isn't the hard bit, it's the keeping it off. 
And so this has opened up for pharma companies really an avenue to look at, are there other ways we can help people living with obesity to lose weight? And semaglutide at the moment is taking kind of pole position as the drug that will do that. So should we ever think about just briefly what NICE say about that, Nick? Yeah. What are they telling us? What they're saying is uh, the bottom line, we have three drugs licensed in the UK at the moment for the management of obesity. We have Orlistat, Lyraglutide and Semaglutide. The only one that we can initiate as primary care clinicians is Orlistat. So we can write that prescription ourselves and you'll find details in the article about where Orlistat sits. But for people to access the other drugs for lyraglutide and semaglutide, we need from primary care to refer them into tier three weight loss services. And of course, access to those is a real postcode lottery. What's it like in your area? Well, that's a really good question. We've been told, and I'm not sure if it's changed yet, but we were sent out an email when this first happened by our local prescribing team to say that um, it's not currently available in our area, so we can't do any referrals. Wow. Um, and But of course... Our patients have heard about this uh, and it's been in the yes. press. Uh, and so yeah. it's it's a case of managing that expectation. And that's why it's so important yeah. to know all about this, because they might be thinking, having read it in the papers, that, oh, you know, I can either get it off my GP or they can refer yes. me. So it's worth may maybe having a read of the pearl and looking at our local pathways and seeing what we can and can't do and, and yeah. seeing maybe what the time frame might be as to when we can refer. Um but also it's important to know and maybe go through it with patients that are interested. These are the criteria that, that they will be on a national level so that when it becomes up in our area, this is what you need yeah. to meet, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So a take action point from reading this pearl might be to find out actually what provision of tier three services you have in your area and whether at the moment they can access this drug, because that gives us confidence in managing those patient expectations. So nice say that we can use semaglutide for weight loss or for weight maintenance alongside behavioural interventions, so a reduced calorie diet and physical activities. And it's this is for adults and it can be used for a maximum of two years in the context of someone being supported in specialist weight management services where there's a multidisciplinary team. So for most of us in England, that will be tier three and four services. If you're working in Wales or in Scotland or Ireland, there's slightly different structuring, but the same idea. In addition to that, they have to have at least one weight-related comorbidity. So we'd be thinking about things like maybe diabetes or osteoarthritis, ischemic heart disease, and a BMI of at least 35 or between 30 and 34.9 if they meet the referral criteria for specialist weight services for other reasons. And you can read all about that in the article. The one thing I'd just like to flag here that's been quite a big change recently in the obesity guidelines is the need for us to reduce the threshold of BMI for people from a range of non-white ethnic backgrounds. So for South Asian, Chinese, Middle Eastern, Black African, African Caribbean family backgrounds, we know that the risk of obesity related complications is higher at lower BMIs for those groups. So actually, we need to reduce that threshold. And it's usually a reduction of about 2.5 that we do there. But the details of that, again, are in the article that's in the show notes, if you want to look at that. That With was a drug, big learning point able... for me. Yeah, and, and that's that's a, it's a new thing. And it's really important because 
if we don't think about that, potentially we can exacerbate health inequalities that exist for those groups. So it's really important to be aware that complications occur at that lower threshold. So, yeah, I think the message for me, we could we could do 20 podcasts on obesity. It's a yes. complex area, but just specifically for semaglutide is find out, can you access it through tier three services? Be aware of who is eligible. Be aware of what it can and can't do. And there's some detailed evidence in the article which you can look at. But also, I think there's this thing of being aware some people may be getting it privately and they may be getting it at lower BMIs privately as well. Yes. And the other thing that struck me about the whole licensing of it is that, that what they've said mm. is that it's going to be for a maximum of two years. Yes. And yet we know that when people come off these drugs, they start mm-hmm. to put the weight back on again. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is what the evidence shows for the duration of time people are on the drug, they lose or maintain their weight. And, you know, it goes any time at a lower weight has health benefits. So it's still worth doing, but we need to be realistic about managing patients' expectations about this. And once people are in those services, they may also be eligible for bariatric surgery and to consider if that's a more suitable option for them. Yeah. So it seems that at the moment it's about us managing expectations, but also about looking into how we will be able to refer when it happens locally for us. So that's the first pearl. So so which one are we going to look at next? We're now going to look at the one that made me smile and it made me smile in a bittersweet way, not in a happy way. So this Mm. was the pearl we sent out about moral distress. This came out the week that um, the BBC reported that staff had been being interviewed across the ambulance service about their experiences of dealing with the volume of workload and that people had been breaking down in tears about the moral distress they were experiencing in having to make decisions that they hoped they'd never have to make, where they were aware that the decisions they were making were causing patient harm. And it made me smile because there's some important stuff in this article and it encouraged me to show compassion for myself and more compassion even than I felt already for our colleagues at Red Whale and our wider primary care colleagues who are listening to this course because I think all of us can relate to that experience right now. We know some days that the pressures within the system are meaning we cannot deliver the care we wish and are able to provide given a different system and that is incredibly difficult. And I I found it really telling to to read the, all the stuff about moral distress um, because I'm sure that all of us in the primary care teams can can re- relate to that. And it was quite shocking yeah. to think, my goodness, that that is us at the moment. Yeah. So, so just in case people haven't come across this concept, moral distress is basically defined as a sense of psychological unease that we feel when we're compelled to behave in a way that conflicts with our personal beliefs or ethics or values. And the initial concept actually often came from the military, where people were um, in war situations. It's very telling that we're now talking about it in relation to the entire staff of our NHS, really. Um, Something I just wanted to say now, because this topic, you know, this might be a topic that's quite triggering for some people, is that if you are struggling right now, you are not alone. Um, please do seek help. Reach out to your colleagues, reach out to your own GP or to practitioner health. In the show notes, you'll find some sources of support that you can reach out to if you don't know where to go. Um, But we can't change 
quickly the system we're working in right now. So the part of the pearl I wanted to focus on for, for my learning points was what can we do to support each other and our teams at the moment? Because it's really easy to feel alone, isn't it? It is absolutely. And, and what I liked about this is that there are some really, when you look into it, there are some proper sort of practical tips that, and, and steps that we can take to make our lives easier. And and I like particularly things about how we can change the way that we work. And something we've started yeah. doing at our practice, um, which we didn't do and we were very bad about doing before, is trying our best to have a group coffee break, even for five, 10 minutes in the morning where we get together and we can talk about how, you know, how's it going? Um, anybody got any problems with a patient or, you know, what have you been up to over the weekend? That kind of thing. And it makes so much difference. Yeah, absolutely. And th they are those opportunities where if we know we can't provide what a patient needs, there's complexity, the waiting list is too long, our, wait, our referral's been rejected, rather than shouldering that alone and taking it home, just being able to share it with some colleagues, it, it doesn't change the lot for the patient, but it helps us to refill our own cups so that we can go back and keep doing what we need to do. Um, Another another interesting idea, actually, that one of our other presenters, Osman, shared with me is that in their practice, they've started to, where they've got more than one doctor telephone triaging at the same time, and particularly if they've got trainees or less experienced colleagues, or sometimes if they've got new um, allied health professionals working with them, they work together in one room. So they do their phone calls upstairs in the coffee room with a number of them together. And that sense of just a shared activity, being able to just say, would you do that? Can you do has made a big difference for them. So I, I thought that was a, a nice tip to take away. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's something that we've talked about in my practice. We've not done it yet, but because we're so tight on space, actually, that's yeah. a quite a practical thing to do because it will free up space if you're all working together. And there is that sense of camaraderie, isn't there? Yeah. Well, maybe if you try it out, you could report back on a future podcast and see how it goes, because I, I, I okay. it sounds to me like a really nice idea. So, yeah. And um, I think, you know, the other thing is from our, our own individual self-care point of view, if we're okay right now, what do we need to do to stay okay? Because it's the easiest thing in the world when you're under pressure that all of the things that sustain you and fill your cup start to go. So I, I heard someone talk about this nice concept of sort of just sketching out what do I need on a daily, weekly and yearly basis to recharge me. So, you know, from my point of view, I need my sleep. I know I do. I need eight hours sleep. If I don't get it for more than a few days, I become cranky and miserable. I need to exercise outdoors a couple of times a week. If I don't do that, then I could become cranky and miserable. There's a theme here. Um, and, you know, a couple of times a year, I need to get away to it. I need to stop work. I need to forget it. I need to not look at emails. I need to put it to one side. And if those things aren't, you know, they're the, they're the absolute basics. And when we're at the practice, we need to be able to go for a wee and we need to be able to get a drink. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. And I'm, I'm with you on that. I need to, I'm, I'm not great at prioritising sleep, but that's something that I really need to get better at. Um, regular exercise. Um, I find that certainly in the winter months, I've signed up to a, one of the online sort of cycling spin classes, one of those teams yeah. of things, which is really good. And there's a bit of sense of community with that. That's really good. Um, I've also got a, a puppy who's just turned one, bless him. And oh. so, so doing regular dog walks has been really lovely. And in fact, this morning, it was just beautifully life affirming. It was, you know, nice, nice part of the time of the year. Sun's up early in the morning. Just wonderful. So those things are really good for me. 
Yeah. So for me, you know, the take action points from this pearl were, are you okay? If you're not okay, please reach out and ask for help. Is your team okay? Do you have a mechanism in place that you know? Can you ask them? And what things, if you are okay right now, do you need to keep in place to keep you okay? And then the rest we have to hope will shake down. Exactly. And I think um, one thing that's, that's really probably quite good to do, and I've done this in the past, is you almost write down your markers of when you know you're functioning well and when you're functioning less well. Um, and and one of the things that I stop doing is I stop listening to music when I'm getting really stressed or I'll stop exercising. Yeah. And so there are really early warning signs for me. So I think it's worth maybe sitting down and doing that for yourself, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds, that sounds a really useful uh, strategy to put in place. Yeah. Okay, so thank you for that, Caroline. And um, let's move on to the next part of the podcast. This is your podcast and we're encouraging you to be involved in it as much as possible. Uh, And this next part is hopefully going to become my favourite part of the podcast because I think we can all agree, as we've been discussing, that primary care is very tough at the moment and we can all do with a smile. So we've been asking you to send in your stories of perhaps when things... Well, you had the best intentions, but things didn't work out quite according to plan. Uh, so we're going to start with our first story. And as we go through it, I wonder if you could think about your your version and and send it into us because we could all do with a smile. So send in your stories and we can all have a smile together. Uh, so let's start with this story from, let's call them Cece. It was a beautiful spring day. The sun was warm enough to make you smile as you felt it on your face The sky was flawlessly blue, but the wind was cold enough for me to be tying my favourite pastel pink scarf around my neck. At the time, I was working as a GP in a small village community, and that lunchtime started off with the best intentions of setting a good example and getting some physical exercise. It was one of those rare days when we didn't have any home visits, so seizing my chance, I pulled on my wellies and set off sporting my brand new cream linen trousers. Uh, I think we can see where this is going. (laughs) There I was with a spring in my step walking down the path that runs alongside the river near to our practice. I stuck to the path as much as I could because the grass on either side, though beautifully green, was rather soggy, if not boggy, in places. I was halfway through my walk when suddenly, out of nowhere, I was hit by a massive force from behind and I was flung up into the air and then splosh, or maybe more of a splat, as I landed face first in the slimy, cold, wet mud on the riverbank. I was covered from head to foot in thick mud. My scarf, my top, my linen trousers, everything. And then I heard a bleat. (laughs) Rather embarrassingly, I'd been rammed by a sheep. My only saving grace was that my glasses had protected my eyes. So when I took them off, I had two round, mud-free rings, which made it easier for me to see that the sheep was coming back for some more to have another go. (laughs) I ran back to the surgery as fast as I could, frequently looking behind me to make sure that I wasn't going to get rammed again. Now, being that this happened in pre-COVID times, I didn't have any scrubs to change into, so I had to do my afternoon surgery consulting in my mud-encrusted clothes. I had to explain to every single patient why I was covered in mud that afternoon. Amongst them was my favourite patient. Let's call him Mr Wiseman. 
He hobbled in with his walking stick and instantly the wheezing belly laugh started. He said to me, you know, things could always be worse. If he'd sat down heavily in the mud in those cream trousers, it would have looked like something else had happened. So beware what can happen when you have the best intentions. And remember, there's always somebody worse off than you. So, so thank you, Cece, for that story. <laughs> and if you have a best intentions, <laughs> then do send it in to us. So how do we do that, Caroline? So you can um, DM us at, on Twitter at GP underscore updates, or you can email us at podcast at red hyphen whale dot co dot UK. And we'll put those links in the show notes underneath. Um, but we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely, because we could all do with a laugh right now. So, so please we do really send them could. in. As we said, it's it's your podcast, so so please do that. Okay, um, I think it would be really nice to to find out who on from the Red Whale team, where, what they're up to at the moment, where they are for the next month. So, Caroline, what's going on? Yeah, because you might spot them near you. So we've got um, exactly. oh, what we got? It's a busy month this month. So we've got Andrew and Mike in the studio doing our MSK course uh, this weekend. We've got Io and Fiona traveling up to Manchester on the same day that Hussein is down in Torquay in Devon. So if you see them, give them a shout out got our menopause course in the studio and one of our new presenters Amna doing her first ever GP update together in the studio so really exciting month and our authoring team have started the job of working through the pile of articles for our autumn courses there's some exciting stuff coming up in there too yeah the work never stops and and if you are on a course and you you see one of those presenters we've talked about do say hi to them we love it when you say hi and um and it's really nice to get get feedback from you as well okay so um we have two more pearls to talk about haven't we so what should we talk about we do so um we're going to talk about the one I've been waiting for. Um, And this is about neuroendocrine cancers. And some of you might have looked at this thought, why on earth are we talking about neuroendocrine cancers? They're really, really rare. And there's a few reasons. So the first thing I want to say is one of the most heartwarming and rewarding things about our job as presenters at Red Whale is when we get emails from you where you tell us that you came on one of our courses or did some learning and it came in really useful back at the practice and something happened, you had a light bulb moment. And this happens not infrequently that we teach something that we learned about at medical school and it's back in the hazy swamps of memory. And of course, mostly in primary care, common things are common. But just now and again, we get a zebra. And so neuroendocrine cancers is one of those light bulb conditions And the other reason I was inspired to write this pearl is that one of our wonderful past presenters who doesn't work with us anymore was diagnosed with neuroendocrine cancer some years ago. And he specifically approached me to ask, please, could Red Whale do a pearl on this? Because actually, it's really difficult to diagnose. And it's one of those unenviable conditions that takes years to diagnose from first symptoms. But actually, early treatment can make a big difference. So for both those reasons, we did neuroendocrine cancers. And I think... When I was reading this, I think the thing that I found reassuring was the fact that so many of the symptoms hopefully would end up with us doing a a two week referral. But but it feels like the the bigger picture is to be thinking if 
that doesn't lead anywhere. If you think there's something wrong, then A, don't be afraid to flag it up and say, this is what you're thinking. And B, yeah. keep pushing. Yeah, absolutely. So this is it's this is not an easy diagnosis to make. It's not an easy diagnosis for us to think about in primary care. It's actually also not an easy diagnosis for secondary care to make. So this is one of those situations where we're our patient's advocate. And if things aren't right, um, we need to sort of keep pushing. I'll, I'll come to some tips about that in a minute. So they are rare. Neuroendocrine cancers are rare, but they're growing in incidence. And actually, if you work in a practice with 10,000 patients, let's say that's the average size practice at the moment, your practice will probably see one case. So diagnose one case every two years. And you'll probably have about five people on your list at the moment who are living with or beyond neuroendocrine cancer. So it's rare, but it's not super, super, super rare. Um, and on average, it takes about 53 months from your first symptoms to get a diagnosis. And usually people have had about 11 GP appointments and three secondary care appointments. So as I said, not easy in primary care, not easy in secondary care either. And the interesting thing is, so neuroendocrine cancers are cancers of the neuroendocrine cells and they feature all across the body and they cause their symptoms in two different ways. So a tiny, tiny speck of dust cancer in a neuroendocrine cell can cause symptoms by functionally producing hormones. So examples of those would be things like carcinoid tumour, the one they used to call toilet tumour at medical school because you wheeze, you flush and you get diarrhoea. That's excess production of 5-HT Cushing's, pheochromocytoma. They're the functional hormone producing tumours. And you can get symptoms with those before they're even visible on the most sensitive CT scans we have. So these are difficult. The other thing you can get is non-functional neuroendocrine tumours, which cause their symptoms through mass or pressure effect. And if you look in the article, you'll see there's a table that breaks down the symptoms by different areas of the body. But the most common sites of symptoms are GI symptoms. It can pretty much be any GI symptom and lungs. And again, it can be pretty much any respiratory symptom. And where we want that light bulb to happen is if you've got GI symptoms and lung symptoms at the same time and it doesn't quite fit, or you've got GI symptoms that are evolving and changing over time with fatigue or not feeling right or weight loss. So it's that multi-system symptoms, not getting better, not fitting a typical pattern. People who keep coming back with unexplained symptoms, we should just have that little light bulb and think, could this be? And of course, most times it won't be, but could it be? And I think that's really interesting from what you were saying, because it's this whole thing of could this be? Because if you don't think of it, then you're not going to make that diagnosis. And and I know I said earlier, I felt reassured reading the whole article. But at the very beginning of the article, it actually kind of made me quite anxious because when you read it, it, it was talking about having this ability to sit back and reflect and to think, you know, is your working diagnosis still right? Um, could could this be something else? Um, let's start again from the beginning. And and yet all of those things are much more difficult to do now because of the, yes. the pressure and the time problems in primary care, aren't they? Absolutely. And, and this is, it's really interesting when you look at the research about this, because continuity can be our friend, but it actually can also be our enemy in this situation. So there's a bit of a mixed picture in the research about it in that sometimes we can know a patient too well and we can get too close and there can be diagnostic overshadowing. But 
right now to have that time to sit back, to review all the notes. That's really, really difficult. And one of the tips we put at the beginning was around empowering patients. If we're not quite sure what's going on, to say when they come back, this is a recurring problem or this is an ongoing problem. I'm still worried about these symptoms because that helps us as a primary care clinician to say, oh, okay, they've already been seen about this. They may have seen somebody else. It just helps to flag that when our brains are tired and, you know, we're experiencing those challenges. And it's not forgetting those old, completely unevidence-based rules like three strikes and in and remembering, you know, those three strikes might be two telephone calls and one out of hours attendance. It's just keeping in mind that bigger picture. Um, But yeah, the other important and useful tip I thought, which I hadn't thought of, was if we've had that thought, it could be a neuroendocrine cancer or something else really rare. We should back ourselves to put that on the referral. You know, at worst, we're wrong and who cares? But actually, we might help out a secondary care colleague because let's face it, they're also under immense pressure at the moment. And, you know, it may be the only time they ever meet this patient. So it's just sort of expressing that concern that just crossed our mind for a minute. Yes. And the other thing that I found very reassuring, which I really liked, was was when we were talking about um, using safety netting. Um, and yeah. and it's and I, I, re- I realised that I'm doing this already, which is really 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 reassuring but it's it's when you talk to a patient about what you expect to happen if your diagnosis is correct um and then what what you know how you know if you're wrong and it's about sharing that with them and and I found that very reassuring to read yeah absolutely um and I think that's it you know as a result of reading this pearl are you going to pick up neuroendocrine cancers at the first consultation absolutely not but it gives some general tools we can use for rarer conditions and just that reassurance that our primary care skills will help us in this. We just need to find ways in this sort of new normal we're working in to access those. Exactly. So thank you for that one. And what is the final pearl to talk about? So our final one, a real bread and butter primary care subject. So this was the one that made me uncertain. It was I'm still coughing. And actually, Mm -hmm. this was something as a condition, as a trainee, used to be the bane of my life. People who were still, and I couldn't work out why they were still coughing. I felt like I'd done everything. And, you know, it's not something you ever really learn about in hospital medicine, but we see loads of it in primary care. So this poll was about chronic cough, um, some really useful tables in the article. And chronic cough again is a really brilliant example of how we can use our primary care superpowers to explore a condition. Because what we're doing in that chronic cough consultation, when I sat and thought about this, it blew my mind. We're ruling out red flags. We're using the history to make a sort of probability-based reason decision about what the most likely cause for that patient is. We then go on and use tests to make a hypothesis and perhaps use a trial of treatment or a trial of time to work on what's going on, all the while communicating this to the patient and safety netting. And it just made me realise we we do an amazing job. So well done, everybody out there, because, you know, it's exhausting, <laughs> but we are doing... There's a huge amount of things going on there in that 10-minute consultation. Um, so some tips from this, Pearl, were what are the commonest causes of a chronic cough? And and, and by the way, what, what's a chronic cough? So it's one that's been present for eight weeks or more, basically. And it might be a chronic refractory cough. That's one where we have an identifiable cause, 
But despite the treatment, someone's still coughing. So that might be, for example, someone who's had pneumonia or someone who's had who has COPD. And there's also chronic idiopathic cough where someone's had a cough for eight weeks and we've, despite our best efforts, not been able to get to the bottom of this. The article was based on a DTB review from 2019. And actually what that told us is the three commonest causes of chronic cough in adults are asthma, reflux and ACE inhibitors. So if you have to pin your money somewhere, the first things in your diagnostic SIF are, could it be one of those three things? But the other question we always just need to be thinking is, could this be a lung cancer? And a chest X-ray and thrombocytosis on the blood test might increase our chances of thinking that. But what the DTB said, for anyone who's had a cough for eight weeks or more, they should definitely be having a chest X-ray and spirometry. And in fact, I think most of us, assuming we'd seen the patient in that window, would have done those actually probably a bit earlier than eight weeks in reality. Absolutely. Yeah. And there were were some other other sort of little reminder learning points for me. Was there anything you took away from this article, Nick? Yeah, there were so many learning points for this. The big one for me was about pertussis. And it was about the fact that people who've been vaccinated, they won't whoop, but they can still have a milder version of the disease. That was really interesting. Um, And then two other things. And these are the kind of the... They're kind of small learning points, but they they really pique my interest and really sort of light my fire, I guess. And one of them is ear symptoms. And 3% of people have an auricular branch of the vagus nerve and irritation of the external auditory meatus can cause a cough. And I just thought, wow, I did not know that at all. And that was really interesting. Um, (laughs) And then the other thing, which I really, maybe I should have known, but I didn't know. um, There's so many, and I'm sure all of us have thought, oh, that patient's on an, on an ACE inhibitor, they've got a tickly cough, let's stop the ACE and that'll get better. Um, I didn't realise that the cough can sometimes take up to a year to settle down afterwards. So sometimes you might be thinking, oh, we've, you know, we stopped the ACE, oh, it's not made any difference, let's yeah. maybe restart it. So, so that was a real learning point for me. Yeah, that, it's, a, it's a real dilemma, isn't it? That one, if it's going to take up to a year for the cough to settle, do you keep looking for other causes in the meantime or do you accept it's the ACE? Yeah. We just, we we hold so much uncertainty and make difficult decisions. And it's, um, yeah, it's great. But if this is an area you find difficult, I'd really recommend you do read this pearl and have a look at it because it gives us a nice framework to unpick this topic and some good learning points. Absolutely. Great. I think that's our Pearl Roundup for well, this month, Nick. Um, just to give you an idea, when I was reading these pearls, I thought I'd make a note of how long it took me to read them, just to give you an idea. So um, the, the one we just talked about with the chronic cough took me about 11 minutes to read and to process. Uh, and then yeah. when we were talking about neuroendocrine cancers, that took me about 10 minutes and 15 seconds. <laughs> um, very, very precise. precise. Uh, <laughs> um, moral injury um, and moral distress took me 11 minutes and 15 seconds. Um, and then the obesity with the pharmacological management, that took me 14 minutes and 38 seconds. So that may be takes a little bit longer but I have to say that that all of those things when you sit down with a cup of tea maybe you know leave yourself enough time and it's there's so many things that you can pick up and and it's those little things that I find really exciting so so those were great learning points for me as well um so thank you for that so a Um, a lovely hour of of CPD there then Absolutely. And, you know, if you then go and sort of look through the articles, it can probably build up to a bit longer, couldn't you? Yeah. And stick it quickly on your appraisal toolkit so you've got it logged. (laughs) 
And that's half the battle because I always forget to do that. So definitely do yeah, that absolutely. too. Absolutely. Um, so um, I think we are coming to the end of the podcast now. So just before we go, um, as we've talked about the primary care team and how important we are all working together to sort of get through the day. And I thought it'd be a good idea. We've been asking people to send in their primary care superheroes. And so we're going to acknowledge them now. Um, so let's have a look at that. So from Kate, primary care paramedic Martin at the Simpson Centre Beaconsfield for his excellent clinical care, commitment to holistic care and for motivating our team with his humour and cakes. And Sarah sent in her nomination, which is Jack Evans, primary care pharmacist at Seven Health PCN in Gloucestershire. From Hussein, we have a nomination for Dr Joe Fleming, health and wellbeing coach at Leamington Primary Care Network. And Susan is nominating Penny, practice nurse at St Bartholomew's Medical Centre. Amna um, is nominating their PA at Leah Vale, Marine, who is absolutely amazing. And finally, Mike from Pendle Medical Partnership in Colm is telling us that when our practice manager retired and we didn't have a deputy practice manager, we had no management team. Our amazing admin lead, Nicola, stepped up until a new business manager was in place. She's a true primary care superhero. And if you'd like to nominate a primary care superhero, then you can do that by DMing us um, on Facebook or on Twitter. And we are at GP underscore update on Twitter. And if you want to see something about the podcast, then please use hashtag Red Whale Pod. Yes, and we'll be looking out for that as well. So if you yeah, pop it on there on the on your tweet, and we'll be searching on that on that hashtag so that we can see what's going on around, around the podcast. Or you can email us at podcast at red whale.co.uk. And as we said, this is your podcast. So do please keep those coming in and we can mention your primary care superheroes next time. So that's just about it from us for this time. Thank you so much for listening. But before we go, um, all the resources that you need for the podcast are in the show notes. Um, So what have we got on there, Caroline? Uh, So we've got links to all four of the pearls that we've talked about today. If you don't get our pearls, but you've listened to our podcast, there's a link there to sign up for the pearls. They're completely free. We don't share your details with anybody else. Join the list and you'll get access to this great free CPD. Um, We've got that document um, that links you to sources of support. If you're a clinician who's struggling, feel free to print that off, share it with any colleagues if you think they may benefit from that. I think that's the main things we've got this month, Nick, isn't it? Absolutely. And all those links are in the show description on your preferred podcasting platform as well. So what we're going to do is put them on there so that you can click through when you're listening on your preferred podcasting platform. And the other thing that you can do as well is that if you click on the link in the bio um, on social media, then you can leave us a voice message. Um, And this, um, if you want to maybe tell us about something that you found helpful or something that you'd like us to go over or to cover, um, then if you'd like us to do that, then we can also use your, your voice message in a future podcast. So we'll look out for that. So just before we go, let's have a look at the learning points or some of those learning points. Um, So who knew that irritation of the external auditory meatus could cause a cough? And for me, remembering those top three causes of chronic cough, so asthma, ACE inhibitors and reflux, and that that ACE inhibitor cough might last for up to a year. And also have a think about um, reminders about rare conditions that lead to, to light bulb moments, because it might mean that you spot a rare condition like carcinoid. And remember that it's thought about maybe from medical school as the toilet tumour, which has got flush, wheeze and diarrhoea. So I'm Caroline Green. And I'm Nick Kendrew. 
Until next time, remember to keep Redwell knowledge open on your desktop at work so we're with you when you need some extra info or reassurance. That's what I do and it's always open for me. So so thank you so much for listening and take care, look after yourself and goodbye. 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 <laughs>